BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello there. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and I am here with someone I cannot tell you how many clients and colleagues and peers have told me that... Dr. Dan Siegel has inspired, influenced, and given them their most valuable parenting tools, life tools, self-reflection tools. Um, Your influence is incredible. I'm just going to start with that before I even introduce you. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Pressman. I appreciate that. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here. And just to give a quick intro... Dr. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA, the founding co-director of Mindful Awareness Research at UCLA, the executive director of his own Mindsight Institute. I could spend an hour just going over your bio. Best-selling author of five parenting books. Well, we're going to talk about them, but they truly are revolutionary and helpful. So based in science, but actually very practical. And there's a new one that, when is it coming out, this book? A uh, new parenting book called The Power of Showing Up with Tina Payne Bryson. Yeah, January 2020. January 2020. Can I get an early look? Yes. Yes, you can. And you still have taken the time to do so many other things, including give your time donate your time generously to an initiative that I was working on for pediatric healthcare providers. So, but let's get in here so I can start asking you some questions. Absolutely. So I wanted to, given how busy parent brains are, you come up with so many awesome mnemonic devices for understanding so many parts of child development and parenting. Can you like even, I don't know if this is considered a demonic, are the, are the S's, the four S's, does that count? Yeah, so it's certainly, it's not an acronym, but it's a mnemonic in the sense that it helps you remember, I think, you know, and the four S's are basically how we designed this book, The Power of Showing Up, which is to say that as a parent, one of the best gifts you can give to your child is a relationship that has what's called secure attachment at its root. And the way you can think about that is with these four S's. The child needs to feel seen by you, which means that you see the mind, the emotions, the meaning, the thoughts, the memories. You see the inner experience of the child beneath their behavior. And so that is basically how you see a child. And When there's a rupture, you can always make a repair. So there's no such thing as perfect parenting. But the first thing is to see your child. The next is for the child to feel soothed by you, meaning when they're in distress, 
you offer them comfort that brings them from a distressed state to a calmer state. And again, when you don't do that, you make repairs. And then the third S is when you offer safety and safety has two components. You protect them from harm, but you're also not the source of terror. And if you ever are, of course, you make a repair. When you have those three S's on a reliable basis, being seen, soothed and safe, and when there are repairs, when the inevitable ruptures happen in any of those, then a child develops the fourth S, secure attachment, which is kind of like an internal model that they carry forward, which is the source of resilience. So can you help us figure that out in a in a practical way? So there's a disrepair. What can you do as a parent in a moment where you have that disconnect to reconnect with your child and repair? So the first thing to say is, let's say in our communication right now, Elisa, there's a moment when I can say, can you still hear me really clearly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a funky thing happening with the the, the microphone. I realized I had it on backwards. <laughs> and so I want to check out with you, are we in communication with each other? So that might have been a rupture as I turned this microphone around. Uh-huh. So I literally check out with the person I'm in communication with to make sure that the channels of connection are wide open. That would be an example where if I didn't do that and I went on and on and talked without checking with you to see if you could hear me, that would be a rupture in our communication that I didn't repair. And if I so, couldn't feel safe enough to admit that to you. <laughs> yeah. So now let's just see now that you've heard the context. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. So the idea here is that as parents, we need to remember while we can have a, a kind of a way in which we're aiming for proper parenting to unfold, that there's no such thing as perfect parenting. And in that view, then you say, well, when I'm aiming in this particular direction, then what I can do is try my best. But when I don't achieve that kind of way of being, I can actually make a repair. So that's the idea. Mm -hmm. You said something about not being perfect parents, which is really important to hear. I've been thinking a lot about it because you have so many amazing mnemonics. They have helped me so much. So I'd love to talk about a few more because I think they're just something that people can hold on to and just keep in mind. And not just mnemonics, but even, is it connect and redirect? Connect and redirect, exactly. Connect and redirect. So I think that's just such an another one to, you know, it's such a great tool just to have that in your brain and what does it mean and what can you do with that when you're, for example finding yourself with a toddler that's having a meltdown. Right, exactly. So let's talk about the toddler having a meltdown. You know, at that moment, your child is in distress and he or she is having this moment of being what's called dysregulated. So the question is, what is your move as a parent? What do you do to bring them from dysregulation into regulation. That's the overall idea. Mm -hmm. Now, as this is happening, you have a couple of moves. You could just try to redirect them immediately into behaving in a certain way because that's the outcome you want, in which case your child is not going to feel like you understand them. 
They're not going to feel what one patient of mine a long time ago called feeling felt. And then as they feel misunderstood by you, disconnected from you, their distress is going to increase. Now, at that moment, as you're trying to direct first, redirect them and tell them, do this, do that, they're going to actually escalate the very distress that was making you make an intervention in the first place. So now what's happened is without you intending for this to be the outcome, you've increased their agitation. You've increased the very thing that you're trying to correct. And now you're in a state of distress yourself. Mm -hmm. So with this new level of distress, what would you do then? You would do more of what you thought was going to help. You continue trying to redirect them. So now you're redirecting them, redirecting them, redirecting them, and they're getting more and more agitated. Now you say, oh, my God, this is a spoiled child. So now you have this attitude inside of you like they're a spoiled child. You're a terrible parent. Now you start beating up on yourself and then you can't help but have that irritation come out on your child. And now the whole thing is like kind of a nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. So the path to avoid that is this very simple notion of connect first before you redirect. So it's remember, connect, then redirect. So what does connect mean? Connect means you really tune into where your child is at this very moment, not where you want them to be. I want them to be happy and smiley and having a good time. No, you tune into exactly where they are. So this is where I know it may sound simple, but it's not always easy. And yet, even though it's simple, it's amazing how often parents don't do this mm -hmm. because everyone has a brain as an adult that has an expectation on how things should be. So when things don't match how we think they should be or ought to be or we want them to be, all those things being the same, you know, we then try to make reality into what we think it should be. And children feel that. So then they feel twisted up like a pretzel. And so this is an invitation to say, be with your child first before you do an action to try to make them do something else. So this is counterintuitive to, you know, what you may think is, you know, active parenting that gets a child to do something. We're saying it's all about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this experience of feeling felt and feeling understood, slightly different things, but a part of the same joining, you know, where feeling felt means I feel that you as my mom have me inside you and I can sense that you're really feeling my pain or understood means well, you understood I got in trouble in the playground with my friend and now he's playing with other people and I feel really betrayed by him or I feel really confused by his playing with that other person or I feel really angry or sad or whatever. You understand that in addition to feeling the feeling. So feeling felt, being understood are two aspects of empathy. So you're really bringing your full empathic capacity, I call it mindsight, seeing the mind of me, your son, and now you're also bringing in compassion where you're feeling my suffering and you want to do something. And the doing of compassion is first being with mm. before you redirect. And if there, if, if there isn't an opportunity to have a conversation, being with can be just 
being next to or giving a physical cue. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is the thing, you know, that's so, I think, lost in our busy, busy lives with lots of words is being with starts with a nonverbal mm. being with. And we don't need to get into the sides of the brain, but there is a dominance in the right side of the brain for two big things, maybe three big things that are relevant here. One, nonverbal communication, eye contact, facial expression, tone of voice, your posture, your gestures, the timing of what you say, the intensity of what you say. Those seven things are like the vocabulary, if you will, of nonverbal language, mm -hmm. nonverbal communication signals. And those are almost exclusively sent by and received by the right hemispheres of the people engaging in that communication. So nonverbal communication, the input of the body, heart, lungs, intestines, muscles, they send their signals up and it has its initial input into the right side of the brain. Now, that's the source of emotion. So emotion is on both sides of the brain, but its first impact from the body is dominant on the right. And I know in neuroscience, people say, oh, the right and left are the same. They're not the same. You know, they're really not when you look at the science. And autobiographical memory, the third dominant process on the right side is there, mm -hmm. the self in time. So when you're really tuning into someone non-verbally, feeling the feelings that arise from the body and getting a sense of the meaning of this for this autobiographical moment in this child's life. It's a real right hemisphere moment for you as a parent. And if you're busy having built up your left hemisphere because you're, you've gone to school in kindergarten and everything from kindergarten on Forever, for right. the most part dominates in left hemisphere education unintentionally, but it does. So part of what we need to do as parents is literally remind, bring back to mind ourselves that we have two sides of the brain, you know, not just the left that we got good grades for. We actually have a right where you're going to get good connection with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so interesting um, because in these days in neuroscience, you're not supposed to really emphasize left and right. And I've seen really painful, insulting comments on social media in response from one academic commenting on another's talking about left or right hemisphere is kind of hilarious in a way and sad in another way, you know, that there'd be so much emotion about emphasizing this. But the fact is, if you look at the science, the two hemispheres actually are quite differentiated. Now, the fact is, it is true, they link together. And the fact is, creativity comes from both. Deep reasoning comes from both. And that the simplification, like the right is creative, the left is intellectual, is wrong. So that's correct and not jump to those conclusions. But these elements that I'm pointing out, autobiographical memory, nonverbal, body input first goes to the right, and the left being more linear and logical rather than the holistic aspects of the right hemisphere processing reflect the anatomical differences. So the point is for you as a parent, when we say connect first, it's just like you're saying, go with the being in your right hemisphere that could have simple verbal output like, oh, or that was tough, or, oh, 
Danny, it's really hard, isn't it? Or, gosh, so confusing. You know, mm-hmm. so you don't have to do a long. It doesn't have to be a long discussion format. about your feelings, and and also, by the way, with the dis- distinguishing between right and left, it's just helpful. I mean, I can see if academics are having an argument over wh- whether or not it's useful in the context of a peer-reviewed article, and you know how we're parceling out the brain these days. But for parents, it's incredibly useful to say first address this part of the the right side. And then you can have all sorts of really interesting, rational, reasonable discussions about next steps, but if you with the left. Yeah, well, this is so interesting, just to say a parenthetic moment about this. You know, trained in science, uh, both of us really, you know, trained in science, also being a parent and also being a therapist, you know, as these prohibitions came up in the academic world. Stop talking about there's left and right. Both hemispheres are involved in both things. You know, for a while I said, okay, well, we really want to be consistent with the scientists are saying, but then I looked at the science and actually didn't affirm their (laughs) statements. Even I'd be in even meetings where they'd say the right hemisphere is playing a dominant role in this emotional processing. I would say, Professor so-and-so, can you reflect on what you think the significance is of the findings you just showed on your slides of a right dominance? And he goes, I didn't show that. <laughs> and I go, well, just go back on your slide and we'll see if you showed it. And he turns it back and there it is. <laughs> he goes, oh, well, I, I don't know. You know, it's almost <laughs> like, I mean, this is going to sound weird to say this. And I say this with due respect to the importance of being very conservative about translating science for the public and the parenting public being one public. I really respect that. However, it has been so useful because I think it is based on accurate science. Mm -hmm. Even if the scientists are now prohibited from talking about it, the science really shows. And in neurology, I'm I'm a physician, in neurology, the branch of medicine that deals with the brain, we've known these differences are there for over 100 years. So why the neuroscientists, not the neurologists, you don't hear neurologists saying, oh, there's no difference. They know if you have a stroke or a, uh, an injury or, mm. you know, a, a bullet wound or a, 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 all sorts of things can happen, you know, to the hemispheres. And it's very different left and right. So it's not like a shock. And Aaron Zydell, someone who's done the research in this, we, I was talking to him a while back about these differences. And he goes, yeah, you can take glasses and I can divide the visual field in this very sophisticated way and show the left and right, even in an intact individual, are extremely different. And he mm. shows me all his research data. I go, yeah, there it is. He goes, yeah, there it is. And, and so he like throws up his hands like, well, what are our colleagues doing? So anyway, that being said, for parenting, it's extremely helpful to understand this because you want to really develop both sides of your brain and have them work together. And you want to develop both sides of your child's brain and have them work together. So we're not favoring one over the other. And you do see this possibility. And this is the the joke I was going to say, is that since the left is the only one with words, and when you actually put EEGs on people's heads and have you, have them read scientific papers, it's almost exclusively the left hemisphere that gets activated. Of course. Of so course. it's a left hemisphere that's speaking up, saying, <laughs> on behalf don't talk of, about right. the right like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, but the right can't say anything. It's kind of funny. So we're, we're trying to be the spokespeople of an integrated brain, left and right, important, bring them together, 
life is good. Let's not <laughs> ignore the differences and let's have unity in diversity. You know, that's what integration is all about. I love that. And integration in the, so another mnemonic for you, I'll just, I could do these all day. I don't know how you come up with them, but they're very helpful. But with, what it's about- It's just a weird addiction I have. I, I don't know. I love it though, because they are so helpful faces. Does that feel yeah. like something to explain? Will that be helpful? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, faces is a great one. I mean, those are the five qualities that the mathematics of optimal self-organization says happens when you differentiate and link within a complex system. So what does that actually mean? Flexibility means you're able to, you know, bend and not break when situations change. Adaptability means you actually learn how to change how you learn. So it's related to flexibility, of course. You know, and then C is a mathematical term called coherence, which basically means resilient over time. And there's a beautiful book by Thergard called Coherence and Thought and Action. It's the mathematics of coherence, and it's just absolutely fascinating. But that's, you know, coherence is resilience, basically. Energy means a sense of vitality, and S is stability. So not, not like a rigidity, but something you can rely on over time. So to me, faces is like the flow of a river. If you imagine a river uh-huh. like that's an integration flow, has these faces, qualities, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. And one bank outside of the river is chaos. The other is rigidity. And so this flow, it turns out, is a way you can propose is how to describe well-being. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the ICD-9 or 10 or whatever one, every psychiatric syndrome has a list of symptoms that all can be reimagined as examples of chaos, rigidity, or both. And it's been fascinating to then find that studies of psychiatric disorders reveal impaired integration of the brain, every study ever done, And then the Smith et al. paper in 2015 showed that if you measured every way you can measure well-being and looked at factors, 200 different ways of looking at the brain, one factor predicted all the factors of well-being. And that was how it's called how interconnected your connectome was, which basically means how integrated your brain is. So it's been an amazing journey to be able to say every study of unwell-being has impaired integration. The studies of well-being show its integration. Every disorder has chaos or rigidity. And now we have a model to explain a core notion that a healthy mind is a mind that creates energy and information flow within your head and its body and within your relationships with people and nature that is integrated. It's so interesting because that also is... What we talk about when we think about if you're too rigid as a parent or if there's too much chaos, it's the same notion, right? The I'm afraid to say best practices because I think it throws people into a tizzy, but the idea of also finding that integration in parenting so that you aren't so extreme on either side is critical because, I mean, I think that goes back to, and maybe this is a huge stretch, but I do think that goes back to parenting styles. Some are too rigid and therefore have these health outcomes that are 
potentially negative, right? Authoritarian parenting is too rigid and too controlling and on the other side of it, permissive. There can be a lot of chaos or vice, you know, or it can cause something, the, the opposite effect. But either way, you want to find that space of integration of the, the boundaries and the support and sensitivity. So I actually think it maps out both scientifically and really in the, in the social sciences, just the idea of what happens with those two extremes. I couldn't say it better. That's beautiful. Exactly. And, you know, this is where it's been so fun, you know, writing for parents because, you know, whether it's in the parenting from the inside out book with Mary Hartzell or brainstorm, you know, about adolescence. I'm reading that with my daughter, just so you know. I mean, yes. I read it How before and I loved it, but she's 12 now. Oh, perfect. So, so you're reading it with her. That's, that's a dream come it's true. It's so for me wonderful. You know, and, you know, or the books I read with Tina Payne Bryson, you know, they take basically the core ideas of the developing mind, uh-huh. which is a graduate school textbook on development that basically lays out the proposition. Originally, it was a proposition back in the 90s. Now it's a proposition with a ton of support for it, (laughs) you know, that says integration is health. The mind is broader than the brain and bigger than the body. I need to hear that again, just for my own mind to process it. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. The mind is broader than the brain. Right. And bigger bigger than the body. body. Got it. You know, it's broader than the brain. So that means it includes the body. But then you go, guess what? It's bigger than the body. Right. And then you go, well, what could be both within you and between you? Well, energy flow streams within your skin and case body and also with your connection with other people and nature. And then whether you're talking about ecological justice or racial justice or parenting issues or how you do education or psychotherapy or whatever, you could then make proposals about how to take this human mind and and strengthen it and, and do all sorts of cool things. So I know it's been a little bit of a stretch for maybe this discussion or for some parents to say, we're going to talk science. But what I've tried to do over these years is, you know, take these ideas that are so practical as a therapist and as a parent educator and just make them accessible. So people realize something super simple like this, where attention goes neural firing flows and neural connection grows. So whether you're talking to a kid or an adolescent or a parent who's an adult, you know, they actually can realize they can use their mind to actually get attention to stream energy flow through their brain and their head and get it to change its anatomy. (laughs) I mean, that we now, you know, and I used to say that back in the 90s, people roll their eyes and go, oh, you're from California or something (laughs) like that. You know, but now we actually know, not only I'm from California, but that is actually true. You can use your mind to change the structure of your brain. I love that. What's a concrete way that parents can think about how they can, you know, change the energy, change the neural flow, change the connection in their interactions with their children. Yeah, I think the the thing to start with is if you had to say is there a starting place for every parent, no matter their culture, that research suggests is a fundamental part of how the parent-child relationships promotes 
the the healthiest growth of a child. Uh huh. So they're resilient, they're compassionate, they have self understanding, they meet their intellectual potential, they're caring people. You know, if those are the goals, what do we know across cultures? And it comes down to, you know, one idea, which you know, is super simple. And I'm always doubting myself, you know, and I can't believe it's this simple, but so far the research supports it. It's called presence, mm. parental presence, not with a T, but with a CE <laughs> presence means when you come to your parenting with a receptive awareness that is, and I know you love acronyms that has this coal acronym, you know, curious, open, accepting, and loving, when you bring that cold state of mind to awareness, curious is the C, means you're really interested. What's going on with my child? Open is the O. It's I'm really ready to receive whatever is going on. A is acceptance. What I got from being open, I didn't expect. But you know something? The fact that my child is sad at this moment and I want them to be really happy, happy, happy. And they're sad. I'm going to, I accept that. And then you come with a kind regard that's filled with compassion. And that's simply called love, you know? So that's the L. So curious, open, accepting, and loving. That's what presence means, right? This receptive state. And it starts with that. I love that. I love Cole. Um, here's a question. So I was talking to a group of moms about gratitude because they were really angry with their kids. They were talking about birthday parties. They they, they all had four and five-year-olds, and they were very angry with them for getting all these presents and kind of throwing them to the side and opening the next and asking for more. And one of them said, and then finally my daughter opened a card, and it didn't have a present because it was a donation of a tree. And she said, I don't want that. And she threw it away. Now she was five. And, but, but her mom, taking it so personally that somehow she's raised this bratty, spoiled kid who's not has no gratitude, was devastated. And she yelled at her and she said, I'm taking all these toys that you have if, and we're going to donate them. And you're going to learn to appreciate what you've got. And so I think what you're talking about is she was not able in that moment to say, where is my child coming from? I understand because there was probably a lot of fear there that she did, that she, it's her fault. Like I raised a terrible child, even though she's only five and didn't really have time yet to learn this, but she was uncomfortable. So we talked a little bit about the idea of figuring out what was really going on and maybe not reacting and responding. And she said, but then how do I make sure that she understands that she has to be grateful? And I said, I don't think that's something you can intellectually explain. That's something that evolves over time. But if you yell somebody, you you kind of don't accept how they're feeling because you don't like how it looks, then you can't, you stop. You can't go from there. You know, as I'm using that example, I'm realizing that it doesn't give an opportunity for the real, the bigger question that I have, which is when we talk about presence and love, sometimes it's very confusing for, for parents to figure out then how boundaries and structure and limits come in. So how do you set a limit when you understand that you, you know, you accept how your child feels and also you can't 
allow a certain behavior or a certain activity or, you know, it's easy when it's about buckling a car seat because you never question if you're going to put a car seat on a kid, even if they're upset about it. But what about the things that do matter because you do need to set a boundary or, or have a limit and you're trying to also have this presence, hear them, see them, un- understand what's happening for them. What's that next thing you can do? Is that when you're connecting to the left side to go back to right. what we were talking about before? No, these are great questions. Well, let's stay with that example because I think it really is a great example you're bringing up. So the the child is five. Mm-hmm. She opens up the present, says we planted a tree and she wants to throw this thing away. And then there's a mom you're talking about. Yeah. The mom sees her daughter behave in a certain way. And she has in her mind, I would like my child to have the experience of gratitude yes. and to be realizing that planting trees for earth is really important and that the true gift we can give in our lives is to give back to the well-being of all people and planting a tree benefits everyone because we all share the same air and so that's an awesome gift exactly now the kid is 5 yes and you know that's a complex set of things for a five-year-old to comprehend. And so we can understand the mother's prioritizing gratitude over greed, Mm -hmm. right? And then you can even understand her being mad at herself. Thinking, well, this is a five-year-old and I've raised this child. I've blown it. It's my fault that she's a selfish, greedy, (laughs) not grateful, gracious person. So... (laughs) Yeah. So what you're describing is that she's the opposite of being present for her child. She has her own reactions and we can say we support the beginning of them, which is a way that you want your child to develop certain values, in this case, gratitude Mm -hmm. and giving back. Beautiful. And that she's really irritated. So discipline is sometimes thought of as a word that means punishment and yet it really means teaching. So the goal is to think about teaching skills that will be when your child launches at 18, Mm -hmm. they're going to have those values and those skills. You're in this for the long run and your teaching then has to have parenting moves because we do need to make decisions on what to actually do that have the long-term skill development, skill including values, you know, skills and values that you want to impart to your child so that when she goes off to leave home at 18 or 21 or where she leaves, you know, those skills will be there. So this move to a five-year-old is going to likely have her scared of her mom, Mm -hmm. have her feel not understood, have her feel penalized, have her feel like growing trees is associated with a feeling of loss. She's only five. Oof, you she's know? only five, yeah. And, and so while we can understand the long-term desire for gratitude, and we want to honor that. So if you're working with this mom, you don't yell at her. You say, yeah, I can really understand your feeling. that you And, and so from a developmental point of view, you know, let's talk about how you might do that differently because if that is your goal then introducing the idea of giving back 
shouldn't be done at a five-year-old birthday party (laughs) where someone doesn't give some kind of fun toy, which five-year-olds like to play with. You bring her to a tree-growing garden and you see how important trees are and you see what it means for the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we did a conference recently on the connection between awareness and, you know, our connection with earth and saving the earth and stuff. And, um, one of the, you know, we had 400 people in the audience and these were adults there, whatever. And one of the people in the audience was an eight year old. So I brought this eight year old up on stage just to chat with him, Uh you know, and, um, he said, Dan, he goes, can I tell everybody why I came? I said, sure, go ahead, Max. And he goes, um, I was on the beach north of San Francisco where we live. And, you know, I saw all this trash and I said to my mom, this is not right. There's all this trash. What can we do? And she said, I'm taking you down to Los Angeles to go to this conference <laughs> where they're going to talk about what to do. And she put him in a car wow. and drove him eight hours down to our conference. And I saw him during the break oh. and I saw this little kid there and I go, wow, you're, you're here. He goes, yeah. And so with the mom's permission, he came up on stage and it was so beautiful because she didn't like go on the beach with him and say, Max, you see this trash? You've got to become a, a, an advocate for ecological justice. And uh-huh. Let's do this. You know, they're playing on the beach and he feels it. Right. So, so it was he a very had, it, natural thing that she then could support his thing. And you should have seen him respond when the other faculty members were, you know, talking about racial justice and wow. gender justice and, you know, just seeing how basically with all these things have in common is an embracing of our interconnections. Mm. Right. And, and this Max, this eight year old boy, he got it. And I said to Max, you know, what do you feel about what these other faculty are, what they're saying? He goes, Oh, it's so good, Dan. It's so good. You know, <laughs> he said this in front of everybody. And it was, You know, it was so beautiful because I would say this to the mom, you know, you're absolutely on the right track, but let's try using a different kind of train on that track, you know, and, and and sometimes the slower you go, the faster you get there. And I mean, the other thing I'll just say that someone told me at this conference that I thought was so beautiful, you know, it was some wisdom statement too, that some wise people must have said, (laughs) but it was this, it was, you know, we need to be aware of the intention we want to cultivate and live with that intention, but we can't cling to outcomes Mm. because once we cling to outcomes, you know, we're actually getting in our own way. Yeah. Then you get mad when your kid doesn't feel grateful for something because you're, you were looking for that outcome. Yeah, exactly. So there's a developmental pathway that, your child will soak in you as a role model for how to be grateful for trees. And they will soak it in and they may go through a period of five, six, and they want their own toys, whatever, eight, they may be mad about plastic, and then 12 to whatever, 18, they don't talk to you or whatever it's (laughs) gonna be, you know, and all this stuff that happens. And so you gotta take a deep breath Mm. and realize, especially because I have a 25 year old and almost 30 year old now, you know, you set that intention and don't cling to the outcome. It's going to work out beautifully. But if you, if you cling to the outcome, people will freak out that they're disappointing you. What a beautiful, perfect way to end this discussion that I want to have 700 more of. The idea 
of letting go of that, not clinging to that outcome because of the just thinking about how your kids might feel like they're disappointing you after all that intention. Those are such helpful, wise words. Truly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Let's let's uh, have another ongoing conversation. Continue the conversation. I would love that. I'm going to find you again and take you up on that. You know, it's really great to be on the journey together with you, Elisa, and to really, really translate this wonderful science, which when translated in a practical way is really useful and actually fun and impactful. So this is why it's so important. I think we get the word out about these really, really scientifically grounded ideas of how to raise resilient and caring children in the world. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. And you are so incredible and such a mentor. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now for my show notes. I mentioned something that I thought could sound confusing when Dan was talking about chaos, rigidity, and integration, and then I compared it to the idea of parenting styles. So I'm going to briefly expand on that because it's an important consideration to reflect on whenever you're trying to make parenting choices. And understanding what dominating parenting style you have or under which one you were raised can help inform you of what kind of parenting style you feel most at home with. Then you can determine what parts you want to borrow from and what parts, if any, you want to change. So there are four parenting styles that have historically been identified. One is neglectful parenting. I'm not even going to explain that because a neglectful parent is not listening to a parenting podcast on raising good humans. Then there's the permissive parent. This parent is incredibly sensitive. It's best friend parenting. They are there for their children in every way. They don't want their child to feel any disharmony or discomfort, but they have a very hard time with boundaries and expectations and giving responsibilities to their children. Then there's authoritarian parenting. This is on the other side of the extreme where permissive is more chaotic and allows for the child to kind of rule the show. The authoritarian parent is completely controlling, not sensitive to the child's needs, and is kind of finding themselves saying, because I said so a lot. And a lot of times what happens is their parenting is fear-based. And children who are told that the expectations and control that exists for them is because I said so with no valid reason or understanding of what's going on, tend to listen to their parents, but they don't actually internalize that and often can end up lying to their parents just to avoid being punished. And finally, there's authoritative parenting. An authoritative parent is the balance of both being sensitive and thoughtful and considering the autonomy needs of a growing child, but also is thoughtful about setting up appropriate boundaries and expectations so that the child can become an autonomous person. Now, there's quite a bit of research over decades suggesting that authoritative parenting is the best style to help children thrive. That doesn't mean that you always agree with that style. It doesn't mean that a child who was raised in another style isn't thriving. I'm sure many listeners were not raised in that exact balanced style. It just means that on average, kids who are raised with an authoritative parenting style tend to have better social, emotional, and cognitive outcomes and a more balanced sense of adult well-being. 
This is probably because the control that appears fair and reasonable to a child is much more likely to be complied with and internalized than control that appears rigid and without any reasons. And it also means that there's a nurturance and a sensitivity and an attunement with the child so that they're connecting before redirecting, just to go back to what Dan Siegel said. So you can see what I was getting at was that when Dan was talking about rigidity and chaos with the place that you want to get to as integration, the balance of those two things, I was thinking about the control of the authoritarian parent and the lax chaos of the permissive parent coming together in a middle ground where we find the authoritative parent. And again, parenting styles in real life are not static. They're dynamic. You may find that in certain moods or with certain topics, you just take on a different style for various reasons. You do not have to be perfect at this, and it's ever-changing. The hope is just that you think of it as a North Star to help you make clear decisions when you're feeling kind of stumped. You can always say, okay, what's the sensitive but appropriate boundaried way to respond to this particular situation? Thank you for listening. And remember, I'm still trying to explore different kinds of guests, different tones and structures. So let me know what you thought of this discussion with Dr. Dan Siegel and DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast or by email, Raising Good Humans Podcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed it, please like and follow me and consider subscribing to the podcast. Join me next week when I'm speaking with Professor Emily Oster author of Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Professor Oster is an economist at Brown University, and she's going to go through her exhaustive analysis of what research has to say, and more importantly, what it does not say, about the upsides and downsides of typical stress-inducing topics such as breastfeeding, potty training, sleep training, and other issues that come up in those first couple of years. This is about empowering you with reliable information so that you can make decisions with confidence in a sea of underminers. I hope you will join us next Friday.